Um, it's now time for us to open up the Word of God, and so let's bow our heads for a word of prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are here so that you can speak. We have gathered together this morning so that you could deliver a message to us. And so we are praying, Father, simply praying that you would be here in a real way. Father, we know that there is nowhere that we could go to escape your presence, but we are asking, Father, that the blood of Jesus would cover us as we open your word so that the Holy Spirit has access to our life. Father, we are praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles. Open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 is our topic of study today. Daniel chapter 8 and the prophetic material there in Daniel chapter 8. You would remember that two uh, weeks ago we got into Daniel chapter 9 and you may be asking, why did we start with Daniel chapter 9 before going to Daniel chapter 8? And you will see very clearly today why we have done that. But we are turning in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 8 and we are going to begin reading here very soon. Before we do, in uh, Mark chapter 4... An interesting discourse takes place between Jesus' disciples and Jesus. Does anyone remember what that was from two weeks ago? Mark chapter 4, Jesus is there. He's had a long day ministering and he has fallen asleep on a boat on his way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are there in, in distress, in turmoil, and they wake Jesus up and this very pregnant question is asked of Jesus. Do you not care that we are suffering? Do you not care what is going on here in this situation? Jesus, God, you are asleep. Don't you care? And so we are going to see very clearly today another example in Scripture of when God stands up as he did in that boat. And as he calmed that sea, we are going to see today from Daniel chapter 8 we are going to witness another moment when God is to stand up and the effect that that is to have on each of our lives. Let's go to Daniel chapter 8 together. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 starts off in verse 1 by saying, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, um, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me at the first time. I saw the vision and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in vision that I was by the river Ulai. This is very interesting that Daniel would describe in such detail the location that he has taken in vision. This is somewhere that Daniel would have spent a lot of his time in his capacity um, there in the Babylonian Empire as well as the, the Medo-Persian Empire that was to come. This is 15 years before uh, Cyrus and Darius and their armies would come and invade Babylon and overthrow the Babylonian Empire. So we are talking here of 15 years before the Medo-Persian Empire, and Daniel is taken in vision to the bank of the Uli, which is where there is a citadel or an ancient palace that was used by the Medo-Persian kings in the winter. In the summer, they would go to their summer palace. In the winter, they would come to their winter palace. And here is Daniel, 
in vision on the bank of this, it's called a river here. It's more of a stream, a very narrow stream. There's a tiny little footbridge going over this stream. And you can stand there on the bank and you may not see the images that Daniel saw. But you can certainly go there and see the citadel up behind you in this little tiny river or what we would probably call here in Australia a creek flowing through this area. Now the question is, what did Daniel see in vision? Why is it that we are taking our time, our precious time this morning to study Daniel chapter 8? And the answer is found very clearly in the text. As we study through, we see that in vision Daniel saw first a ram. He has had his vision in Daniel chapter 7 where he saw several beasts coming up out of the water. And now Daniel is standing here and he sees this ram coming up. And this ram is notable because it has two horns. How many horns does a ram have? Two horns and one of the horns is raised up higher than the other one. This is consistent of other images in the Bible that we get of this power that is to come. But here Daniel sees this ram with two horns. uh, One of the horns is raised higher than the other one, more prominent than the other one. And then as he is considering this ram, as the ram is destroying everything in its path, as the ram is uh, going and conquering the world, this other beast comes and this beast is now a goat. It says a he-goat. And this goat has one horn. And this one horn is notable because it refers to, um, in Daniel chapter 7 and also in Daniel chapter 2, we have seen that this is speaking of Alexander the Great that is to come several hundred years later. And Alexander the Great, as this goat is referenced here in Daniel chapter 8, this goat is said to not even touch the ground, it is going over destroying. And, and Alexander the Great conquered the then known world and beyond in just 10 short years. And by the age of 32, he passed away, uh, some say by malaria. Certainly he was there in Babylon and we don't know the exact causes of his death. So this goat that doesn't touch the ground, symbolizing Alexander the Great with this one great horn. And then to come after this, the Bible says, four horns would come up in its place. If you are reading in your Bible, you will see as we are tracking through Daniel chapter 8, these four horns come up. And of these four horns, so we, we now go back to history and we ask ourselves the question, what took place after Alexander the Great was ruling here on this earth? And what took place because he didn't have um, an heir to take on the throne, because he was so young, he hadn't planned his succession And so these four generals take um, over the Greek empire that Alexander had built in just 10 short years. And these Greek uh, generals, Cassander, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Seleucus split up the empire into four divisions. And uh, they then continue ruling in its place. The Bible has been accurate to this point. It even names over in verse 20. Let's go over to uh, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20. It says, The ram which you saw having two horns. Remember, this is 15 years before the conquest of the Medes and the Persians in Babylon. The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. These two horns being representative of this dual kingdom. 
And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And as the, for the horn, the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. You see, the Bible goes into great detail in describing by name the empires that are going to come after Daniel. But the interesting thing that takes place here in Daniel chapter 8 is these beasts that are represented, these animals that are spoken of. It it isn't a normal language that is used to represent these nations. As the bear in Daniel chapter 7 represented the Medes and the Persians, uh, you could find bears in the north of their empire and the ferocity that they went out and conquered the earth could be spoken of of that as a bear being separated from her cubs as Hosea prophesies in Hosea chapter 13. So here we are, the Bible describing the events of earth's history, but this time not using the language that has been used before. Now Daniel is being very specific in shifting the attention to not just any animals, not just any beasts, but beasts that are being used, animals that are being used in the sanctuary, in the atonement of the sins of the people. And so we are going to pick up this theme as we go through Daniel chapter 8. Let's continue reading here. It says, And out of one of them, speaking of the four winds of heaven, in verse 8, we're reading from Daniel chapter 8 and verse 9. It says, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south and towards the east and towards the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the hosts, And some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the hosts. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. The Bible here, uh, Daniel using sanctuary language, seeing in sanctuary terms this vision with references right throughout to the sanctuary. Daniel is seeing something here that would have distressed him to the absolute core. Daniel is seeing here, notice that last phrase that we just read, he would take truth and cast it to the ground. Now what happens if you remove truth? What happens if you take truth out of the equation? What are you left with? Error, falsehood, lies. And so here we see that as the truth is removed, that not only is there there no consequences, but he's actually, this little horn power is prospering as a result of trampling truth to the ground. We as a society today, Are we seeing the effects of what the little horn has done, trampling truth to the ground? Are we seeing what it is like to replace truth with error and the the effects that that has on us on a personal level? Certainly. You see, when you take truth out of the equation, you are left with lies. And it says in the Bible that that is the work of the enemy. That the devil called the liar, that deceiver, That is all you are left with. 
And so we see here that these nations that will come into power will not just be working on a political sphere, but there will also be very interesting religious implications to the work that these powers have on the globe. And so we see here very clearly as we study the books of Daniel that we can actually identify who these powers are and look back and see the effects as truth has been replaced with error or with lies and the way that the devil has been able to work through these political and religious organizations in order to bring about his means. Truth is being crossed to the ground and prospering. Now, Daniel isn't just anyone. Daniel is someone that has been willing to give his very life for truth. Remember back in Daniel chapter 1 when Daniel was faced with a test and that test was he could eat of any of the food at the king's banquet. He was actually encouraged to eat at the table of the king and yet he refused. Why would he refuse? Because of truth, because of the principles that had been revealed to him earlier in his life, because he didn't want to cast truth to the side. He was willing even to get sick, even to be malnourished. But God was able to bless him then as he put truth where it ought to be and as he lived his life according to principle. Daniel has already seen the effects of when truth is removed out of the equation and what it looks like for a nation to live according to the lies that the devil is telling them. Daniel is living in a pagan society where truth is taken for granted or where where truth is one of just the many other options in the plethora of ideas and ideologies floating around. This is Daniel and he is seeing here in vision that there will be a time, maybe he's thinking it's his time, when truth will be cast to the ground. And not just will it be cast to the ground, but the one doing so, the one responsible for this, will be prospering as a result. Daniel here in vision is seeing a time that he would dread to believe, that he would dread to see take place. As Daniel is contemplating this, as Daniel is seeing this, it says here in verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking to another holy one. Said, uh, sorry, then I heard a holy one speaking to another holy one, said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Notice what is taking place here. Daniel is so perplexed at what is happening that a holy one, in other words, an angel has to say to the other holy one, Uh, Daniel isn't really with us right now, but how long is this going to take place? I believe that what is happening here is Daniel is thinking, surely this can't go on. Surely God can't allow this pain and suffering and truth to be trampled to the ground. How long is this going to go on for? How long will our God allow truth to be cast down to the ground? And so this angel speaks on his behalf, how long will these things be? In verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. For 2,300 days, in some translations, evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And we are going to look today at the implications of this on our lives. We saw last week, uh, two weeks ago, 
in Daniel chapter 9 that there was a prophecy given. Daniel was shown in prophetic vision. Because he didn't understand a prophecy that had been rattling around in his mind, he understands who the ram is. He understands who the goat is. He understands that this little horn power would rise up and take over God's sanctuary and that the, the sanctuary services would cease. But something in this prophecy is left unchecked. Something in this prophecy is left unexplained. And so this angel comes again, the same angel that he had seen previously in Daniel chapter 8, comes in Daniel chapter 9 and explains the vision. And we saw in Daniel chapter 9 with the 70-week prophecy or the 490-year prophecy that in 457, the the people would be given a decree to leave the exile in Babylon. And that would take us through 490 years to 34 AD. Notice here with me the way that this is described in Daniel chapter 9. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9 and see this for ourselves. It says here in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And then it goes on to say, to finish transgressions, to make an end of sin. You see, what is taking place here is that this 70 weeks being determined, that word determined is actually chat hack. Chat hack in Hebrew. What is the implications of this chat hack? What does it sound like, first of all? Now, David uh, Ashrick has called me up on stage before to, to illustrate, not at the time chat hack, but this move of chat hack. Are you following with me? A wrestling move or some sort of karate chop, I imagine. That is the literal meaning of this, being hacked in half or hacked to pieces. Chat hack, this word determined here, is it's literally cut off from something else. Now, what is this 490 years cut off from? What is it removed from? And we see here that this 490 years has been determined or chat hacked from this 2300 year period. And so we have for ourselves the starting of this period where it says in 2300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. We understand from Daniel chapter 9 that that begins in 457 BC. And then from there, we are able to go 2300 years into the future and get ourselves to 1844. Now, in order to understand what took place in 1844, we have to understand what this language means of the cleansing of the sanctuary that would take place at the end of this period. How long will these things be? Unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. So what is the cleansing of the sanctuary? Before we get there, let's just have a look really quick. Daniel chapter 2 we see that the first symbol that is given is gold, the second silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay, and then stone is given to represent the second coming. We see in Daniel chapter 7 that this is uh, what prophecy is doing here is, is repeating and enlarging or repeating and expanding or repeating and zooming in on certain details. And so we see here that the same progression is given, gold being the representative of Babylon, the lion in Daniel chapter 7 being Babylon, and so on and so forth. But notice here that after the little horn comes in Daniel chapter 7, that judgment takes place. 
and then the second coming or the stone, as in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 8, we see this same progression taking place. We see the ram representative of the bear or the silver or Medo-Persia. We see the goat um, as representative of the leopard and the bronze. Then we see the little horn, and the little horn here is given two functions, not just political domination, but also religious. And so we see this little horn in Daniel chapter 8 being both the little horn and the indescribed beast um, in Daniel chapter 7. And then notice what takes place in Daniel chapter 8 is where judgment would fit in in chronological order in Daniel chapter 7. The sanctuary is cleansed. Therefore, we can see very clearly that the, the language of the cleansing of the sanctuary is also referring to judgment. We see in a book, uh, 1844, made simple by Clifford Goldstein, for for thousands of years from the time of the tabernacle in the wilderness until today, meaning that for for as long as the sanctuary has been, um, the, the Jews celebrated the cleansing of the sanctuary, a specific day that was set aside, the day of atonement as the great judgment day. So when Daniel is saying in Daniel chapter 8, or when the angel says in Daniel chapter 8, that unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed, this language is of what? Judgment. It is of judgment. The language of the cleansing of the sanctuary, this was for the Jews, the sanctuary that was given to the Jewish or the Israelite people, a judgment day. And so we see very clearly from Scripture that in 1844, judgment would begin in some capacity. And so we're going to spend our time today looking at what this means for us. And the good news is that we have four takeaways. Everyone loves takeaway. Everyone loves Thai or Indian or pizza or whatever it is. So today you're going to get four takeaways. You can put in your orders right now. Uh, Our options have been given to us, unfortunately. Uh, But we have four takeaways from our message today that we are going to see. What are the implications of judgment beginning in 1844? The first takeaway for us is not Thai, but it is your sins are atoned for. Your sins are atoned for. Now let's unpack this a little bit. The word atonement, the day of atonement, as the Jews would describe this day, Yom Kippur, as it was in their language, is simply when it's broken down at one mint, at one mint. Everyone can read here, I am assuming. And so we see that the word atonement, literally when it is broken down, simply means at one mint. That is, two parties that have been divided or divisive, will come back together at one. They will become one at one mint. Just as Barry is about to go and be married, two parties becoming one, we see that the atonement is also speaking of this same concept. Notice here in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary, the Bible says, that I may dwell among them. This is God speaking. And there's only two lines here, but I've underlined the important bit anyway, just so you can't miss it. That I may dwell among them. What is God yearning for? That there I am, you may also be. I never thought I'd be singing out the front, but I I heard the song when they were singing it, and it's pretty catchy. So so God's purpose. Jono, we might have to remove that out of the recording. (laughs) Or auto-tune it, actually. That would be even better. Uh, That I may dwell among them. God's purpose throughout eternity has always been what? 
atonement. Atonement has always been to be where his people are, has always been for us to be in relationship, in communion with him. And therefore, as we are looking at the sanctuary, we are talking about a a model that was given to the people of how God, how this great God would deal with this sin problem that had brought separation between him and his people. And that model is given through the sanctuary. In Leviticus chapter 16, talking of the day of atonement, it says, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. This is a beautiful picture, friends. The sanctuary model that we are given, it goes something like this. Uh, there was a tent that was, or a tabernacle that was to be established in the midst of the camp, in the midst of the people. And inside the first, the outer court as it's called, there was a, um, a, an offering to be made, a sacrifice, an altar set up to make an offering or a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And so the priest would come and he would uh, he would pray over or he would uh, help the, the individual that has brought this lamb or whatever it was to be sacrificed. And they would pray over the lamb. And it was a very significant prayer in asking that their sin, their guilt, their shame would be transferred onto the life or into the life of this little individual. And then that, uh, that lamb would be sacrificed on their behalf. This is the sanctuary. Then the priest would take the blood from that offering. After he has uh, removed its head, uh, he takes the blood from that offering into the next chamber where there is a showbread, there is a candlesticks, um, there is incense that is burning, and there is a veil that is there in the temple, and he uh, places that blood with the the guilt or the, the shame of the individual that has sinned on the curtain inside the, te- the temple. Now you can imagine we've got a few million people living in the wilderness, all of which uh, you would imagine committing sin, and then they are sacrificing lambs or other animals, and the priest is daily taking all of this blood to this one curtain. How, uh, <laughs> how hygienic is that going to be? Not very, right? We've already noted two weeks ago that This veil was a huge veil. And all of this blood is being sprinkled on this veil. And even though it's a little bit, you can imagine what is going on here. And so here we are on a day that was set aside for the cleansing or the cleaning of the sanctuary. The place where all of this sin has been built up symbolically by the transference from the individual to the animal to the temple and now the temple is going to be cleansed. The interesting thing with this service is that the high priest was the only one that was able to go beyond that veil on this one day of the year. And before he could go in, he was to make an offering for himself and for his household so that he was able. Now, friends, I have to tell you that I've been deliberating over this message for some time. And the reason why is because when reading this, when seeing the ritual that the the high priest was to go through, the priest was to go through in order to partake, I had to be forced to think about what about my life? Where am I at? Am, am, I, am I standing up here today before you because I'm good? 
Am I standing up here before you today because I am better than any of you? Am I standing up here before you today because I am sinless and I'm the only one that could surely speak on behalf of the Lord this morning? Surely not. In my bedroom, in my study at the back here, I've been deliberating over this message, praying that God would cover my sin so that it wouldn't be me that was seen today, so that he would be seen. Just as that priest was to make a, a sacrifice before he was to work on behalf of the congregation, that sacrifice was to be made. That sacrifice being representative of Jesus, none other than Jesus. So we see here as a result of this this spring cleaning, this day of cleansing in the temple, that the people would be able to say that their sins were clean, that they may be clean before the Lord. Is that a powerful thing? The people would walk away with confidence knowing that they were righteous, not because they hadn't done anything wrong, but because God was merciful, because God's sacrifice was made on their behalf. Notice this, when the the high priest was to go beyond the veil, there was a very interesting moment in the whole ceremony, and that was, would the sacrifice that he had made be enough? If that sacrifice was what enough, uh, not enough, a, a rope was tied to his ankle so that they would be able to pull the dead body out of that inside of the most holy place. Does that tell you, does that communicate the significance or the seriousness of this event before the people? Certainly. That they would tie a rope so that they could pull the dead body out of the high priest if that sacrifice was not enough. Now friends, it says that we have a high priest in heaven. The book of Hebrews tells us this. And there is good news for us today in the message of the sanctuary. We'll come back to that. Uh, In the book, The Sanctuary Service, it says, It must have been with happiness in their hearts that Israel went home in the evening of that day. What does it say there? Clean from all their sins. In quoting Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 30. It says also in Hebrews chapter 9, For God did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, in other words, the, the, um, the earthly sanctuary, which was a copy of the true one in heaven, meaning the heavenly sanctuary. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. Why is Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary? Why is Jesus administering the sacrifice that was made on our behalf? It is so... It is so. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice. To what? To take away the sins of many people. And then this is the whole point. This is what uh, Paul is driving at here in Hebrews. It says, He will come again not to deal with our sins 
Why is it that this could be said? When Jesus comes back, it's not to deal with our sins. The model that was given to us through the sanctuary is showing us how God is going to deal with our sin so that it, be, so that it could be said that when he comes back, sin won't be the issue, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Are we eagerly waiting for Christ today? Are we eagerly waiting for the the second coming of Christ? To not deal with sin, that has been dealt with, the Bible teaches us. The sanctuary message is that over time, God has been dealing with our sin. He has been ministering on our behalf. The second time that Jesus comes, it won't be to deal with sin. It will be for salvation. Hallelujah. In other words, atonement will be made. We will be at one again. We can be at one with our God. The second takeaway here, and this is going to be a quick one, is that God is on trial. It says here in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4 that you may be justified in your words and you may overcome when you are judged. There's this concept of why is it that this judgment is being dragged out? What is it that is going on, this cosmic conflict that is taking place? You see here, the Bible alludes to this idea that God is the one on trial, just like in Revelation chapter 12, when the accusations were made by the devil, the father of lies, against God and against his character against his kingdom. We see that he is the one that is on trial and we are the subjects in this trial. It says here, David says in Psalm chapter 51, talking of his great sin with Bathsheba, it says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, Blot out my transgressions. Why is it that David is calling for God to blot out his sin, to make atonement for him? Why is it that David would be yearning for his sins to be forgiven? We see here in verse 4 of that chapter, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you, notice, not I, not David, not Joel, When we ask for forgiveness, when God makes atonement for us, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. How is it that God is able to take this group of sinners and say, I will see you in my kingdom? How is it that we today are able to sit here and sing that we are going to be with him in heaven for all eternity? You are a bunch of sinners. I am a sinner but I'm saved by grace. Hallelujah. That because of the atonement, because of the death of Jesus upon the cross and the administration of that death in the heavenly sanctuary, I can say like David, praise you for your tender mercies. Thank you for your loving kindness. Judge me, calling for judgment that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. God, don't just... Wipe away my sin so that I can live for eternity, but do it in a way that brings justice. Do it in a way that is right. Don't just turn your head so that you can't see it anymore. God, God isn't silly. Many of us think that God just says when he forgives us, you are forgiven, my child. And then somehow in his great mind, he forgets what takes place. No, that sin has a cost. That sin has a price. And praise God that Jesus has paid the price for our sin. Our third takeaway is that God stands up in our series. When God stands up, it says in Genesis, 
It says in Genesis, that is actually the wrong verse for this takeaway. Um, It says here in Psalms, You stand up to judge those who do evil, O God, and to rescue the oppressed of the earth. Notice when God stands up in judgment, what is the result of that? When God stands up, something takes place, and that is that He does it in order to rescue the oppressed. In other words, to bring justice to those who have been abused, to bring justice to those who have been living their entire lives without it. We see here in our third takeaway, and this will be our last point for today, that God is relational. The last thing that we are going to learn from our series here, when God stands up unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. What is this language of the cleansing of the sanctuary of that great day of judgment? It says, and they heard, speaking of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, speaking of Adam and Eve after they had just sinned, after they had taken that fruit, after they had disobeyed God, after there had been discord or disconnection in their relationship with God, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then it goes on to say, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, These precious words, where are you? You see, before God judges, before God pronounces either guilty or righteous, he does something, an incredible work, and that is he investigates what is taking place. Do we praise God for that? That God isn't removed from us. No, God is relational. He draws closer when we sin. When we are found to be guilty, God doesn't remove himself. He actually pursues. Amen. The God that we serve, the God that has given us his great and precious promises or truths that can be drawn to is revealing that God draws near to us in times of our greatest need. And that is shown right in the very beginning, and it is shown right through the Bible to the book of Revelation. That when Adam and Eve sinned, when man is found guilty, when man sins, when man breaks the relationship with God, that he draws in. Where are you? Now the question for us this morning, the question for us this morning is are we pulling away from God or are we drawing as our Savior draws near to us? Are we responding to God as He is pursuing us or are we walking even further away? You see, friends, the Day of Atonement for the children of Israel was a day to come before the Lord. It wasn't actually just a day. It was actually there was a week of preparation before this great day. It was a somber week in the camp, a week where they were pleading with God to reveal their sins so that on that day, no sin would be overlooked so that everything could be atoned for. A cleansing was taking place. A spring cleaning was taking place. They didn't want anything to miss out on that roadside collection as we have here in Australia. So just like we, when those trucks are lining up to come through, it's a great week where you can go around and look for everyone else's junk. 
In the Day of Atonement, you may not have been wanting to find everyone else's sin, but still it was a time when you had to put all of that trash out on the side of the road and just get rid of it. All of those things that have been piling up over the year or for some reason it happens every year, you've still got things that you haven't used for 10 years and it ends up there on the curb. That is what the Day of Atonement was for the children of Israel and I believe that that is what today can be for us. This time is a somber reflection to reflect on, yes, I have declared God as my own. Yes, I have given my life to him in baptism. Yes, I have been cleansed from my sin. But over the years, over the years, things have built up. Over the years, as Brian Derrick would say, my feet have become dirty. And so we need cleansing. And this is a time when we can come before the Lord and pray, God, Lay it on my heart. What do I need to ask forgiveness for? Just as the children of Israel would come before God and ask for this cleansing so that the high priest could offer the sacrifice on their behalf and clean the entire sanctuary. We have an opportunity now to ask for this same cleansing, to come before the Lord. Say, Lord, reveal to me my sin so that I too may be atoned for, so that I too may be cleansed, so that I too, just as the children of Israel, may walk out of this place rejoicing that my sins have been forgiven, that my sins have been atoned for, that my relationship, my severed relationship with you is at one again. Does anyone want that experience today? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We are calling out to you right now, just as those priests used to come before your children, before the congregation, we are calling out to you. Father, none of us deserve the death of Jesus. None of us deserve you to send your son to die in our place. And yet he did it without having to be asked. And so we praise you for that. Father, we just want to ask right now that there would be no sin left in this camp. That there would be no hardened hearts, Father, that we would respond to the call this morning to come before you. That your spirit of repentance may be here. That we may sense the call to come a while, come away a while, and to receive a blessing from you. Father, we just want to ask that your blessing would be upon us now as we partake in this service. May our hearts be cleansed. May heavy hearts, may burdened hearts leave here feeling free. Leave here knowing that you and your sacrifice is enough to cover our sin and give us the promise of eternal life. The assurance of eternal life is our prayer. In Jesus' name we say, Amen.